Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Upbeat from Everything Conducting, the podcast made by conductors. My name is John Devlin, and I am the music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Enrico Lopez-Yanez, principal pops conductor of the Nashville Symphony. Each week on Upbeat, we discuss concepts related to the field of conducting. And it doesn't matter if you're just starting to explore the idea of conducting, already lead your own ensemble, or maybe aren't even a conductor at all, we've still got something for you. We sure do, and every week it starts off with the 4-4, a segment where Enrico and I share a list of four things related to our topic of the day that we think will be most useful in your career. So, John, what's our topic for today? That's the next thing on the script. Today, we'll take an upbeat look at the audition week process for a music director position. Oh, very nice. Well, as we both know, and as you have clearly successfully uh, participated in these searches, a music director search, though we've covered the idea of assistant conductor searches, can be very different. This is something that... uh, is going to not just be a one day, you know, step up to bat, knock it out of the park and you're done. This is a much more on the ground intensive experience for anyone going through this process. When you audition for an assistant conductor position, you may be one of 10 people spending one day with the orchestra. When you are applying for a music director position and you have your interview week, you may be one person there for 10 days. And it's an extremely intensive, multifaceted process. And I think that not only will the 4-4, but also the talk we're going to have with our guests will shed some light on that. That's right. We'll be welcoming our guest for today, who's Michelle Merrill. And Michelle is the former associate conductor of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and currently serves as the music director of the Coastal Symphony of Georgia. So she'll have some great insight, not only into the music director side of things, but Michelle also leads a very active guest conducting career herself, too. So she's traveling all over, working with a huge variety of incredible orchestras, which is something that in and of itself is a completely different trajectory that we can talk about. (laughs) (laughs) There'll be a podcast on that too, I'm sure. And, right. and and while we're on that topic, I'm looking at you with a different background because you are in a hotel room in Utah working with the Utah Symphony this well, week, right? Well, that's right. I'm on the road. This is my first time on the road this season post-COVID, which is great. Uh, it feels nice to be out of my home, which is and, weird. <laughs> right, exactly. And then what also probably feels pretty weird is conducting with a mask. Oh, yeah. A Latin music program with strings and percussion only. So what are you, singing the trumpet part? <laughs> right. No, I'm saving the audience that pain and disaster of me singing anything. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a very fun program. It's very different, very challenging. Uh, you know yourself, because you recently started conducting in Wheeling as well, that the social distance orchestra poses all kinds of new challenges that we weren't used to previously. So it's been an adjustment, but it's just great to be making music again. Yeah. I mean, there's the oxygen deprivation factor <laughs> that plays into it. The the orchestra not here because they're so far apart from each other. They're waiting a little bit longer to hear. So we're going to talk a little right. bit about that perhaps with Michelle. Well, I think on that note, we have a big episode ahead of us with a lot of exciting information, and I think we're ready to go. So let's give our first step eight and head to the 4-4. Welcome to the 4-4, where we will take our upbeat look today at the topic of what a music director search week really looks like. Beat one is preparing your mindset. So John, as we mentioned earlier, a music director search is like none other. 
there's a whole different amount of time involved and types of things that you will have to participate in. So where do we start in terms of getting our head around what we're going to be dealing with in this monstrous week? To me, there's nothing more strenuous than an on-the-ground music director week. I remember it so well. And the last time I did this, I flew overnight from Hawaii, hadn't slept, and then got to my staff meeting over a lunch. Um, A little rough for the wear. But I I think it's not a bad thing that it's so strenuous, but you need to be prepared mentally and physically. Because every moment you're around someone that's part of this process, and even if they're just a community member that supports the orchestra, their voice will be heard in some way. And any one of those could be the tipping point as far as the determining factor for the success of a search. And I think the most important thing to be aware of in that mindset is the fact that when you are there for a week, you are going to be expected to give them your entire week, meaning <laughs> yes. every potential waking minute that you're there. I mean, there are so many different constituent groups that they're going to want you to be meeting with that we'll go into in a few seconds. But really knowing that from the crack of dawn, when you wake up to mm. the last you know, drink you go out to have with a donor at the end of the evening, you are going to have a full schedule and you need to be prepared to be on fire and on your A game that entire time. There is usually some sort of 6.15 a.m. radio (laughs) show that you're calling into to promote the concert, and then you're going to have coffee, and then you're going to have breakfast, and then you're going to have brunch, (laughs) and it's just because they need that face time. They may be about to entrust the future artistic leadership of their organization into your hands. They want to know as much about you as possible, and this is really their most prominent chance to be able to explore who you are as a leader. And I think there's going to be many different groups that we should make our audience aware of that you're going to have to interact with throughout the week. Right. So let's break down those groups. I think the first one that is the most obvious is, of course, the musicians. Right. This Now, the musicians are going to want to know and what they're looking for is the experience that you will be providing them should you win this position. Mm-hmm. So what is it like to rehearse with you? What are the kinds of ways that you are going to interact with them from the podium? What kind of Mm -hmm. things are you hearing and responding to? What is your gestural vocabulary and how do they respond to that? And in general, what is the sort of vibe that you will be creating in that space, both during the rehearsals and then in the concerts so that they know what kind of experience they can expect over the tenure of your music directorship? Right. And similar to creating a vibe, as you called it, and a leadership style on the podium, Mm -hmm. there's also going to be even more people you're going to interact with and creating an ethos around your work with that are going to occur out of the concert hall. And starting, I think, most prominently with the board and staff. They want to know, can you be a leader and inspire the people that you are going to work with? But also, can you be a collaborator? What would a normal meeting feel like? What would a normal board session feel like? What would a development meeting feel like if you were at the helm? And I think it's important for all of us to consider not only what's going to happen on the podium, but what's going to happen in situations when you're working with people like that. Exactly. And this is where you're going to be asked those important questions about your vision, about your ideas, and about the artistic entity that you want to shape the institution into over your time. And that's also going to be 
important to the next group, which is the community members or the audience that you're right. going to be mm-hmm. interacting with. You will oftentimes have things like interviews, as you mentioned, on the radio or on television where you're speaking to an audience or potentially at a lecture type situation. And you might also be meeting community members who are potential collaborators. You may be going out to meet the local art institutes or the local artistic directors of the ballet. And those people are going to want to know what is your vision for collaboration with the institution? How might might they be involved if you were to come to this city and be the artistic leader of the symphony? And for the audience, what can they expect in terms of the types of concerts and opportunities that they have to be entertained by the institution should you be at the helm of the orchestra? And speaking of the people in the audience, not all audience members are created equal in the eyes of the <laughs> orchestra because some of them are writing big checks. Uh, and yes. And it will behoove you to do a little research when you find out who you're going to be meeting with, knowing who is going to be amongst those most prominent donors and engage with them in a way that's going to show we can, if I am picked as the successful candidate, be a good steward of your money and of your influence. And you can trust what the organization is going to look like with a new person as the artistic face. Right. So why don't we dive a little deeper into some of the more specific areas of your interaction by heading over to B2. B2 is on the podium. So much of the work that we're going to do during an audition week is going to be out of the concert hall. But I think the thing we look forward to the most is certainly the time spent on the podium with the musicians. Talk to us a little bit about your philosophies surrounding this. Well, I think that the first thing is that we have to realize this audition is not quite like an assistant conductor audition where you're there for a small chunk of time and every moment is hyper analyzing every gestural vocabulary tool you may have. But it's also not like a guest conducting week where the ultimate aim is simply to get a performance ready to go done and then they're never going to see you again or at least not for another season so really this experience is sort of a hybrid where you're doing a little bit of both all at the same time so so john how do you combine those two ideas into one when you're preparing for this on the stage experience it certainly is nice to do an audition without a established famous conductor watching, analyzing you, but you just get to work <laughs> definitely with your musicians. And for me, the philosophy of how you want to do the work changes in this situation in a very unique way. Hmm. When we're in the assistant conductor type role, we're learning how to execute Right. Can you get this piece with a professional orchestra from the beginning to the end and have it work, often with very little rehearsal? Yeah. <laughs> now, the orchestra is paying a tremendous amount of money for rehearsal to be there for you, mm-hmm. and you need to make it valuable. Right. And so no longer, I think, do we want to try to just hit a single up the middle and <laughs> make the program happen, even if there is a concert coming up on Saturday that we want to go very well. But we need to knock it out of the park. So here's where we take risks. We develop our most fierce and true ideas about what a great sound can be. We work on the balance of the orchestra in a very fine-tuned way. We make rhythmic requests and how we want it to feel in relation to our beat because we're trying to lay a groundwork for what it would like to work with this ensemble for years to come, and we need to make that invigorating for the musicians. Just as if you are approaching a board and giving them your artistic vision for the institution over time, here when you're working with the musicians, what you're really 
really painting for them is your maybe five-year plan of the type of areas that you want to invest in growing this orchestra over the course of all of your rehearsals. So it's not just about making you know, your Tchaikovsky symphony that week sound good. It's about what as an overall orchestra are we going to develop and work on mm. over time to improve and make us a stronger, more effective artistic entity. Because you may be working on Tchaikovsky that week, mm-hmm. but they need to get a sense of what it would be like to work with you on Rachmaninoff mm-hmm. and Mozart and Tower right. during that week and extrapolate it. So if you spend a lot of time working on quality and depth of string sound, or you spend a lot of time working on accurate articulation matching in the winds, they're going to make assumptions about the type of focus you would have for all pieces based on the types of things you try to work on in those three or four rehearsals. So establishing that really pays dividends. And I think even zooming out from the actual week, it starts with the programming if we have the opportunity to do that for the week. Hmm. We want to bring a masterwork that everyone on stage will know and have an opinion about Mm -hmm. to the table because we need to show them that if we do a familiar piece, we have something unique to say about this work. And then I've also found that in conjunction with a famous piece, bringing something that you can teach to the orchestra may be an effective way to make a pairing on the program. Absolutely. Usually, you know, in a typical week, you might have that opportunity, particularly in your overture selection or something in your first half where you Mm -hmm. can present them with something that maybe they are not familiar with, but is deeply uh, connected to your passions and your artistic goals for the institution. So when I've gone on searches, I will often start with maybe an American work by some composer that I feel like I really want to champion over time, or a piece by a Latin American composer that they've never done. And the only caveat I think we should point out about this is that this is all, of course, under the assumption that you get to choose your program. (laughs) I have to admit, I've been in situations in a music director search where you don't get to choose the program. It is completely pre-designed for you and really my big word of advice there is I've had situations where it was all unfamiliar music a standard repertoire but things I had never conducted and in your preparation you just need to make sure that you have learned it to the level where when you get on that podium it seems and feels like a piece that you have had in your back pocket for years and years so that they have that same experience as if you had brought the piece that you've conducted the most times in your life anyway bringing to the rehearsal a sense of how every single note should go is vital because you're going to get asked, you need to have an answer, and it will be communicated in the way that you actually conduct and rehearse. And so having that compelling interpretation and vision for how the piece should go is critical in this type of week. So you're right. Even if it's music that you've never learned before, you have to come acting as if it's an old favorite. That's right. So I think that's a good place to wrap up the first half of the 4-4. Let's have a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back with Beat 3 after this. Are you tired of sitting at the piano and pecking out notes one finger at a time to learn a score because you only got through beginner piano in grad school? Maybe you've just been asked to conduct the world premiere of a new composition that has yet to be recorded. Seriously, composers, can you at least send us a MIDI recording? It only takes like 30 seconds in Sibelius. No longer do you need the piano chops of Daniel Barenboim to learn music like Daniel Barenboim. 
Thanks to Piano Pals. Piano Pals is an easy service providing you a rehearsal pianist to learn any score. Simply download the Piano Pals app, supply a major credit card, and request a Piano Pal. You'll have someone at your location within the hour ready to play any piece. Do you want to experiment with your meter changes or if something should be in two or four? Try waving your arms for your Piano Pal and receive instant feedback so that you are prepared and confident when you step on stage with the orchestra. Our highly trained and student ID verified graduate student piano majors are eager to play any repertoire you may throw at them. From standard repertoire to the avant-garde, Piano Pals can read and play any open score that you can't. Proper transposition of horn and bass clef and trumpet in me, not guaranteed. Tired of practicing to recordings that are at the wrong tempo or that don't reflect your artistic vision? Our highly responsive Piano Pals are trained to follow even the worst of conductors and play exactly what you show them, regardless of how uneducated the interpretation may be. Don't have your own piano at home? Seriously, you must not even be trying at this point. That's okay too, though. Simply request Piano Pals Lux, and a Piano Pal with their own keyboard and amp will show up at your doorstep ready to assist you in your concert prep. Finally, you can hear, learn, and practice conducting any piece in the repertoire, past or present. Piano Pals, putting music at someone else's fingertips. Welcome back to Beat 3, which is off the podium. So John, now that we've had a successful and exhilarating experience with the orchestra and completely blown them out of the water, we have to make <laughs> sure that we're also successful in our interactions that take place off the podium. So where do we start for that? One of the things that everyone knows is coming is an interview. Right. And that's maybe the main thing that happens off the podium, but there are going to be dozens of others. And we love being in the concert hall and rehearsing, <laughs> but this is where the job is really won or lost because I'll tell you what, the board and the search committee assumes you can conduct if you've made it to the finals. Of course. And one of the things we're going to talk about in this point is that kind of persona we want to display. Yes. For me, I know it felt awkward as somebody that was used to moving my own chairs and making my own photocopies. <laughs> Uh, to have somebody that would be the person that makes my schedule and the person that adjusts the stand hate at the concert and the person that files my scores when it's over. And we have to be comfortable with understanding that our time becomes so valuable for the music director, that those people are put into place to do those things so that we can communicate our vision for the orchestra to the people that really matter. And we often do a lot of that during this week. And one thing that you alluded to that I think is so important is that idea of Every interaction you have with people around the city is a part of this process, and it sure. will be something that is going to make an effect on whether or not your candidacy is successful. So whether you are having an incredibly difficult personal life situation outside of work, or whether you are feeling ill or under the weather, every time you meet with people... Unfortunately, you have to bring your A-game. You have to be ready to portray yourself in the best, most authentic and enthusiastic you that you possibly can. And that starts in any one of the situations that we're going to dive into, uh, which there are a lot. There are a lot of ways in which you're going to interact with the community, starting with things that are sometimes informal feeling, which are things like cocktail parties or <laughs> you know casual coffees and lunches with donors or board members, which John, as you know, take up a lot of the time during the week. You're going to have a cocktail party with the donors and yeah. the board members, and you need to be able to communicate something convincing about yourself, entertaining about yourself, and enlightening about yourself in like 
30 seconds and also have a good way to escape conversations so that you can say hello to everyone there because Ah, you don't want to leave anyone as the person that didn't get to say hello to you. Right. And inevitably, there's the person at that party who wants to take every possible minute of your time to tell you about how they learned violin when they were three years old and all of the pieces that they played growing up. (laughs) And another essential skill for these types of things is the ability to milk one gin and tonic for three hours because you want to look like you're having a good time but not too good a time. But I also would not recommend bringing your gin and tonic to the next thing on our list, the committee interview. That's right. Now, we've done some podcast segments on interviews in general, and very much like we have mentioned before, this is the probably pinnacle point at which you're going to talk to and have the opportunity to present your arguments as to what makes you the strongest candidate. What is your artistic vision? What are the types of ways in which you have outlined in your mind the way to grow an institution financially, artistically, uh, collaboratively within the community? And at this committee interview, you're going to have constituents from every aspect of the city, ranging Mm -hmm. from musicians to staff members to board and donors to, of course, you know, executive directors and maybe even a liaison who's leading the search process. Yeah. And I think that in each of these cases, the people that are interviewing or interacting with you want to get a sense of what it would be like to work with you. Mm -hmm. If that's the ED, that is your thought partner. You need to have a very candid conversation about work styles, vision and goals, and hopefully those things will align. Right. This is where you finally have the opportunity to ask some of those deeper questions that you may not want to be presenting in front of random audience member number five who happens to be on the (laughs) committee, you know, and owns a butcher shop down the road but Although that's wanna, a good person to know <laughs> well yes that is <laughs> but maybe not to ask deep financial questions about the wellness of the institution too <laughs> uh, so this is really your opportunity to see okay this is the person who i will most closely collaborate with in leading this successful institution how is this work dynamic feel and does it feel mm. like something that we will both get along and be good collaborators with one another Right. And not everyone will be evaluating you in the same manner. Sometimes you're going to be just speaking to bigger groups and they just want to hear about what you love about music and what you might bring to the orchestra. Can you outline a couple of those for us? That's right. And these are some of the most fun interactions. You know, this includes things like school visits or getting to conduct the local youth orchestra on a piece. Maybe you're doing radio or talk show interviews, you know, want to talk to you about what they thought of the piece and your interpretation. And all of these are, again, opportunities for you to bring the kind of energy and vibrancy that you want to elicit from yourself and give them a sense of what it would be like to have you at the helm of this institution. And one of the other things that happens is that there's going to be a host of off-the-record conversations. Someone on the mm. committee pulls you aside and is like, you know, don't tell anybody else, but you're my favorite. And I, I, candidate number three, I mean, can you believe how that person smells? Uh, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and you just have to stay away from all of it because when we were outlining this, you gave an awesome piece of advice that I think you must share with everybody now. That's right. I think you just always have to assume that even though someone may say something is off the record, it has the potential to not be. Anything you say can and will be get used <laughs> against you in a, in a jury decision about your candidacy. That's not 
to say that you shouldn't be candid. Of course, if you have deep artistic thoughts or things that you are very passionate about, let them know that. Mm -hmm. But just be aware that anything you say may get back to other people in the institution, other people in the city, or other people even outside of this city, because it could be a friend of a member in another orchestra where you are going to guest conduct next week. You never know. (laughs) But on that note, I think that's a good sense of the types of interactions that we're going to have around the week with different groups. So why don't we wrap things up by heading over now to our last beat in beat number four. Beat four is state your case. In the previous three beats, we've talked about ways that you can construct an argument. Mm -hmm. But what is that argument? It needs to lead somewhere. (laughs) And I think the answer is fairly obvious. This is your thesis statement for the week. I mean, this <laughs> statement has to, in your mind, be, I am the right candidate to be the next music director of this organization. And every time you talk to people, that's what you're trying to put into their head. <laughs> the thesis comes at the end of the introduction paragraph after right, <laughs> that's public right. school education. And then it's followed up with a lot of concrete details as to why that thesis <laughs> is correct. And topic sentences, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, John, how can we frame this so that we make sure that our thesis gets across to all of these different constituency groups? It only makes sense for us to be the music director of an organization where the version of ourselves that we would want to be Mm -hmm. and inhabit if we got the job works with the organization and the type of person that they want being there. Mm, Because while wiggling around and being a little different with the players than you are with the board, (laughs) than you are with the staff uh, can actually feel good in the moment Mm -hmm. because you're giving people what they want. They need someone with consistency and that will fulfill the expectations that they have for you. It's always so tempting to, you know, get a question and say, oh, I know what answer they want to hear. So I'm going to give it to them. You know, I know they want to hear. Yes, I will program all new music by living atonal composers so that we expand (laughs) the art form into this avant-garde institution. Can you name your list of living atonal composers? (laughs) No, because that is not my true authentic self, John. So I would not come up with that list. Oh, man. But the point there is that exactly that is if that is not true to who you are, it's okay to say, well, that is not actually the avenue I would pursue as long Mm -hmm. as you are then able to follow that up with. But here are my reasons why I think my vision Mm. would help this institution, even if it's not by going down this particular avenue that you might be looking for me to answer. We've talked on this podcast a lot about building your brand, and this is the right time, if you haven't done so already, mm-hmm. before you get on the plane, to do a rebrand or at least a revisiting of your brand right. because we need to categorize for ourselves our newest set of priorities. And it's not just where you are now, but where you see yourself in five years because if you win the job, you'll be there in five years. Right. And you have to take every mistake you've made, every lesson you've learned, and say the deck gets wiped clean. You can start from where you are now, and what does this new version of yourself look like? I think it has to do with somehow how we answer sometimes the questions in the interview. Right, and I think one of the common fears in those interviews is often an an issue of experience. But Mm. uh, let me say that 
you don't have to be the most experienced person to win one of these positions. If you've only held assistant conductor positions, of course you don't have an answer to how you're going to solve this financial question that you've never been in charge of necessarily. But based on observations of the way in which your music directors or your administration at your home orchestras have handled it, you can certainly have developed an idea or a philosophy of how you would approach the situation, either similarly or differently than how it was handled. And you can have developed your reasons for doing so, so that you can come with concrete examples or ideas of what you would do in similar situations. In the interview room, we are allowed to have gaps in our experience. Like if you can't pick out the wrong note in the second flute, like you should pick out the wrong note in the second flute. But in the, in, the, in the interview room, one of the things I like to do is say, I am not sure how I would approach the situation you're describing. Or I've done it once before and it didn't work out well. You don't have to wait for the question of what is your biggest weakness to tell them how you've grown. But if you're able to say, hey, I've never confronted that situation before, but my brain works quickly, and here are three ways that I would explore it with your team, I think one of these would work well, maybe all of them. That's the type of thinking that business people, which largely is what you're going to be dealing with, they're okay with a mistake, but you need to be able to learn from it, correct it, and do it better the next time. And so a lot of times when we're working in this huge apparatus of an orchestra where change happens slowly, people with inventive and imaginative ways to solve problems can be the most successful, even if they don't have the most experience. And that's why, of course, in all of these messages that we're saying, I think preparation and the development of your ideas is going to be critical in defending your overall thesis, which is this is why I'm the best candidate to be the music director of your organization. That sounded like an ending to me. Well, that's all I got, so it better be an I mean, ending. It's pretty profound <laughs> when you put your mind to it. I think it's time for the interview. So let's head that direction after a word from our sponsor. It was 1943 when Leonard Bernstein jumped in for Bruno Walter at the last minute with the New York Phil for their nationally broadcast concert officially launching his stardom. You've seen this happen to dozens of your colleagues, but when it's your week to cover, some conductor in the best shape of their life shows up and never even turns around to get your thoughts on balance. When will it be your turn to jump in at the last minute and be the hero that saves the day? What if I could tell you that that time was now? Thanks to Put Me In Coach. Put Me In Coach is an undetectable, liquid-soluble powder that can be discreetly placed into the beverage of any music director or guest conductor, guaranteeing their inability to perform a concert that evening. Put Me In Coach uses a proprietary blend of laxatives and mild irritants to cause temporary, we think, discomforts to the imbiber, so that while they're stuck on the throne, you are offered the podium. With Put Me In Coach, you'll have the panic-stricken artistic administrator calling you in no time. Finally, your spare set of concert clothes will get the use they've been waiting for. Put Me In Coach works great in almost any beverage, so offer to bring the maestro coffee, take them out for an after-rehearsal cocktail, or bring them a morning power smoothie and secure your spot on the front page of tomorrow's newspaper. Claim your place in history with Put Me In Coach, and you and the maestro will both be in the running for something. Put Me In Coach should wear off after 48 hours of being consumed. If not, consumers should consult a medical professional, and you should consider leaving the country. We are not legally responsible for any lawsuits that may arise due to the use of this product. When asked, we will claim that this product is simply an energy powder. Put Me In Coach does not dissolve in Pepsi products. Instead, it gets clumpy and floats to the top. We do not know why. 
Well, welcome back to the Upbeat Podcast. We are now joined by our special guest for today, Michelle Merrill. Michelle's an old friend as we ended up overlapping at a lot of different types of festivals and workshops back in those days. And it's nice to reconnect today. Michelle is uh, currently the music director of the Coastal Symphony of Georgia, and she previously served as the associate conductor of the Detroit Symphony for several years. And one of the things that I was most excited to see is in addition to that type of work, you're a guest conductor and you conducted my hometown band recently so i can't I wait to talk to you about yeah. that welcome to the upbeat podcast michelle thank you great to be here you know we mentioned hometown band i lived in washington dc for the last 10 years so to see you on stage with the national symphony and their comeback concert was truly a special occasion not only to see my friends on the stage but then on the podium as well tell us about that and what was that opportunity like it was really great they had asked me to do the labor day concert way back before any of this had happened with COVID and was really excited about that. You know, I'd been to a Memorial Day concert that the National Symphony had done on the mall and just thought it was great and such a great way to connect with the community. And then as things progressed with the virus and the pandemic, it kept being like, well, it's it's going to happen, but but let's do it with a few less people. And then, <laughs> so it was about 40 people. Okay, okay, I'll make a program for that. And then it was like, well, scratch that. We need it to be about 20 to 25 people. Oh, okay, okay, I'll remake a program. And then it was like, well, maybe we can only do like 10 people. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then it kind of went back and we found this great way of kind of doing it small, but then having the nice big America the Beautiful at the end. But it was so, so much fun to be able to work with them again and coming back for my first time in six months on the podium. It was as as you know, it, you miss it. You miss it so much. And yeah, it was, I think everyone needed it and wanted it. And it felt really great to be back. We've compared some notes, right? About how weird <laughs> it felt because of the social distancing and people haven't played with each other. We had this experience like, whoa, oh, there yeah. is no relationship to what we are doing with our head. <laughs> it was so far behind. How did you feel about that? That That is exactly the thing that was happening is it just it's so odd to have so many people spaced out that far and we did Appalachian Spring for 13 instruments as kind of the big crux of our program and to have the woodwinds way in the back and the piano way off to the side when you'd normally have the piano right in the middle it was (laughs) odd but um you know we all just kind of everyone just honed in on each other. There was a lot more look, you know, there's always looking when, when you're playing in a a symphony orchestra, but there was a lot more conscious effort to find the person to try to make sure they were together with them. And I think just trusting that it was all going to work out in the end. (laughs) So Michelle, as John mentioned, of course, you spent several seasons with the Detroit symphony as their associate, which is another incredible band, much like (laughs) the national symphony, uh, now under new leadership with a new music director, but you were also there of course, with the incomparable Leonard Slatkin. Can you tell us a little bit about your time with the Detroit symphony and some of maybe the highlights and also where you maybe foresee under the new leadership, that orchestra going? Well, Detroit is and always will be just a huge part of my musical family. Um, when I won the job, it was early October. I think it was. I think it was actually today. I think it was October sixth. Happy uh, anniversary! Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but I had to be back in twelve days. They said, "Can you be back on the job and start in twelve days?" Oh, and I said, "Wow." <laughs> 
okay. And so I <laughs> went back home and uh, flew back up, you know, 12 days later with, you know, two giant bags. And then my husband ended up driving up that next weekend with all of my stuff. <laughs> I had, I didn't have a place to live yet. So I was living in a hotel, finding a place. And, you know, the wow. first weekend I was there, we were doing the full um, ballet of Billy the Kid for a recording that is now out that Leonard was doing. And then also, um, you know, Garrick Olsen was there playing Rachmaninoff 3. I was just thrown into this huge world of amazing, you know, this symphony that, you know, they're the first orchestra to ever be on the radio. And then they were doing all these incredible webcasts. And they're just such at the forefront of technology that it was really exciting to get to be a huge part of that and get to be a part of the DSO webcast and kind of host that when the host couldn't be there and be able mm-hmm. to talk to all the incoming guest artists and of course cover and be the assistant conductor for all of these guest artists and and talk with Leonard, who as you said is just a titan in our industry. And of course now going forward as they're doing their virtual concerts with Yadder, who I was fortunate enough to get to cover his first instance coming to Detroit when he had to sub for Leonard when he had his illness and he had to not go on stage. And the kinetic energy between him and the orchestra from even just that first rehearsal was clearly evident. And I'm really, really excited that they get to kind of continue this great leadership in both music, technology, and just being a great face for American orchestras under under Yachter's leadership. And one thing that you mentioned, which is absolutely true, is that that orchestra is so at the forefront of technology. And you, as the associate conductor, I think, had some opportunities that almost no associates get. I mean, the amount of like the streaming education concert series that goes out to some 30,000 people that watch it each time. What was that like being on a job where all of a sudden you're way more in the face than any position like that in any other country? So that that was definitely interesting. I told you I had to go and do the job 12 days after I won the job. And then that first webcast that I had to do, it was my third week, I had to do the rehearsal and then (laughs) be ready to go for the host. (laughs) It really was like a dream come true because my family could see it. Other teachers that I used to work with would have their classrooms watch it and they weren't in Detroit and they could still see it. And it's it was really, I feel incredibly lucky to have had that. And also to just get the experience of talking on camera and having to be ready for that. Because that's, as you all know, is such a that side part of the job that we don't get trained for in school. We learn the music, we study, we learn how to study our scores and be the best musician we can be. But we don't ever really talk about kind of the best PR person that we can be or the best (laughs) speaker that we can be. Those aren't things that we take lessons on necessarily. And so it was kind of a little bit of trial by fire jumping into the deep end at Detroit. Too many metaphors there, but <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, it was it was incredible. And, and I miss it still to this day. And I was there for four years. So, And you and I have had the great privilege recently of going into a regional orchestra setup where we are, in fact, the music director. And it's our turn to translate the lessons we've learned from people like Leonard Slatkin into active work that we represent and represent something about ourselves and our our new cities. What advice would you give to somebody trying to dive into their first or then their second year that you've now, we just talked that you're embarking on your third year? Yeah, I think a big thing is kind of, I looked a lot at programs they had done in the past. One, not to just repeat things, but also just to see the trend of what the orchestra had been playing. And Mm -hmm. the orchestra that I'm with, the Coastal Symphony of Georgia, was skewing very heavily on 
1800 to 1900 and only that and so Mm -hmm. i really wanted to show in our programming that there was so much music outside of that while yet because i knew the patrons liked it still giving them that that great tchaikovsky that great beethoven that great brahms but yet throwing in some mozart throwing in a uh, every now and then you know a 20th century piece a 21st century piece but i think a lot of times is you have to know your orchestra and you have to know your audience. And you can only get that from the data from past seasons in some ways. What are they used to playing? What, are, what is out of the comfort zone of both the orchestra and the audience in, in terms mm-hmm. of what they're used to playing? With an orchestra, I think, that is only used to playing romantic repertoire, you have to kind of ease in to build the repertoire of both the orchestra and what the audience will get excited about because they'll still get excited about the big romantic pieces. But if you put that again on a program with maybe a brand new piece, I they might get even more excited about that. I did one piece by Jared Miller called Luster that I had a couple of patrons write that I did not expect to enjoy this piece necessarily, even though it's a wonderful piece, that wrote and said, my goodness, that was my favorite thing on the whole program. Mm. I just wish I could hear it again already. So aside from programming, if it's okay to ask, what are some of the other things that you faced and maybe lessons learned from those first couple of years on the job away from the concert hall? Sure. I think the development is so important with an orchestra. And that's something I got a little bit of trial with with Detroit, but not a lot. But I do remember talking a lot with the development team about how they approach donors, because I knew that was going to be so important going forward as a music director. And in the past two years, I still feel like I I can do even better with that. We have a fantastic board member whose background was in that field. And so when I go on house calls with her, talking with patrons, in some ways I'm kind of setting it up but letting her take the lead because I want to learn from her and I want to learn her techniques on what she's doing because I think that's uh, a great thing when you don't know how to do something to sit back and listen. What were some of the development tips you picked up from letting your associate on the board take the lead in those efforts and then have you employed those strategies? She was she's always really good about listening to what they want and what they're hoping that the orchestra will do. And so something she might say would be, well, as a patron, what are you hoping the orchestra is going to do in the next two to three years, the next five years? What would you like to see? Because then that can help them think about where they might want to direct those funds. They might not want to give just to a general fund. Maybe they're very interested in doing education. And so then you can, after you've listened, you can begin to talk specifically about your vision. And that's kind of what she would throw it back to me, kind of my vision for whatever particular area of the orchestra and the orchestra's involvement in the community that they were interested in. And of course, as we know, finances are (laughs) king when it comes to dictating anything we can do with an orchestra. So how do you balance this idea of limited resources financially, but then your personal artistic vision, that of the organization, and even now with the times and maybe the political climate or social movements in the country, how do you balance all of those things when it comes to structuring a season, but still realizing that you have limited resources to do so? That is that is the question. That is the most difficult thing, especially now with COVID and the political climate. We are in the South, and that makes things a little different when you might be wanting to do things that are highlighting what's going on in the country, and yet you have pushback from your board. And so you have to tread that very carefully. Basically, what 
I've tried to do is just try to emphasize why this is important and why not just for the times we live in right now, but for the future, it's important to highlight this diversity and why we should spend some money on this instead of just playing the same old, same old we've done. Whenever you become a music director, the search committee hired you because they liked your vision. And if they liked your vision, you should be able to convince them of that vision and why it's important. And of course, sometimes you will still have pushback, but if you stay very strong to your passions and commitments and what you really feel is important for both the orchestra and the community, then most of the time, even if people don't necessarily agree with you, they will still be on board because they see the merit in it. Can't thank you enough for the great ideas that you've shared and also the fact that you've maintained such a positive and optimistic outlook as mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these times have been difficult. And as you said, it's all about being flexible and, and, and that's a really great message I think to send out. So thank you so much. We wish you and your orchestra and all the orchestras that you'll be guest conducting all the best. And, and thank you again for, for joining us on Update. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you for, for what you guys are doing with both the website, everything conducting and also upbeat. I mean, it's great to have, you know, you two, you're so happy and, and funny and have all these great guests. And it's, I've enjoyed listening to it and, uh, and hearing, you know, what the guests have to say, what you have to say and working together to get through these times and even past these times, working together to bring music to everyone. Thank you so much, Michelle. And now the coda. It was so fun after seeing Michelle on my big screen here at home for so many years to finally meet her here on the small screen of my laptop, John. Thank you so much for introducing us to her. And wow, I mean, the kinds of orchestra she's getting to work with and her thoughtfulness on then scaling ideas for her own orchestra. It was just great and inspiring. That was a lot of fun. Right. We're seeing in that kind of second stage of your career, uh, Michelle kind of doing everything possible. (laughs) You're running a regional orchestra and getting your chops as far as a, a leader for a community. And then she's working with the premier institutions all around the country. And, uh, it was a little nerve wracking for me to hear her decreasing numbers. (laughs) Like, Oh, we started off with a full uh, giant orchestra and then ended up, she, I think she said the number 10. She said 10 and then they went up a few more to get to Appalachian Spring. But yeah, that was pretty right. Right. Yeah. We all know that feeling right now, but, uh, you know, Michelle is just, you can also hear in the way that she speaks. It's just one of the kindest, most genuine people in our industry. And I thought it was really valuable to hear her perspective on so many of the things that we're facing and the place of music within it all. And next week, I think we'll be hearing from another incredibly genuine and just mm-hmm deeply thoughtful person that I'm very excited will be joining us for not a regular episode, but for a special edition episode as we talk about music as a whole next week. And that's Zoya Laban. And Zoya is a violinist originally from the Soviet Union who came over to be a violinist with the San Francisco Symphony and spent 27 years playing in both the second and first violin sections, now plays here with the Nashville Symphony, but has one of the most incredible stories Having worked with people and studied under Rostopovich, uh, knowing Shostakovich, of course, working with all the music directors with, in San Francisco from Edo Devart to MTT and Esapeka, and just the way that she 
views the musical world and the role of orchestras is so beautiful and I think will be something deeply important for people to hear next week. One of the things that we do on our podcast is pull back the curtain a bit, right? Mm -hmm. And I just have to say, I had not met or heard of Zoya before, but wow, the reason we're making it a special is because we talked to her for an hour and we wanted you to hear that entire conversation. It was one of these moments that changed my thinking about what I do because her story is so inspirational. She told us about leaving the Soviet Union with a bow and a violin that combined cost less than $200 and then in her pocket $100 and then the first thing she did was go talk to Isaac Stern about how to make a career so like that gives you a preview of what you're going to be in for and I I left moved would be understating how I felt just listening to her speak and not only did was the interview spectacular but she had prepared exactly what she wanted us to hear and it was spectacular that's right so you don't want to miss that episode uh one of the great ways to keep up to date on the stuff we're doing is to follow us on social media both on instagram Mm -hmm. and on facebook at everything conducting you can follow us on spotify apple podcasts like us review our episodes we hope you listen and share them with the world and we'll be back with that special edition episode next week you'll hear it on our next upbeat